the National Archives podcast series, From Cotton Spinning to Coffins, Specifications for Patents of Invention, presented by Vanessa Carr. Good afternoon, ladies. <laughs> this time. Yeah, this is a talk about specifications for patents of invention. So I think best way perhaps there is to start off with a few definitions. Letters patent are letters that are issued under the great seal with a copy enrolled in the patent rolls of chancery and I will return to this uh, later on as to a little bit more about exactly what that means. Patents for invention are specific letters patent which grant the exclusive right to uh, manufacture an invention for um, a period to the inventor. And within that, the specification is a description which followed after the letters patent on a separate document. And uh, it's the specifications rather than the patents themselves that I'll be talking about. They give a description sufficiently full to enable the nature, purpose and processes to be understood and applied in practice. Where it is deemed appropriate and useful, the written description is accompanied by drawing or sketch, or, or indeed drawings, sometimes quite, um, quite a number. When I was doing the research specifically for this, I came across one example, uh, one which actually had fabric attached to it because it was for cloth manufacturing, which is the first time, I don't know whether it's unique, I've never seen any reference to it, but that's the first time I've ever found anything that wasn't actually um, a drawing. These are generally attached to the, the parchment roll, so sort of sewn onto the side of the parchment. Occasionally, where something, a very simple drawing will suffice, um, it's actually just a little part of the written description. And occasionally, and I've got some examples of that, the written description is part of the uh, attached drawing where um, the process of the invention is fairly easy to describe. It doesn't surprise you to learn that these are actually quite difficult to manipulate because you've got you've got your roll and then you're unfolding the parchment sort of to the side of that. So it's nice that very occasionally you find a drawing that's actually been added as one of the membranes of parchment as part of it and you haven't got to go through gymnastics unfolding it. And it's the examples of these drawings that I'll be particularly looking at later on when um, I said a little bit more about how the whole process worked. You, it can be disappointing, the, 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 the patent and looking for a specification, because sometimes you get the most exciting sounding patent and it doesn't actually have a drawing with it. And um, I think the saddest example of that I ever came across was Josiah Wedgwood's patent to produce pottery in the Romano-Etruscan style. And I thought this is going to be absolutely fantastic. And there are no drawings whatsoever. So you, you can't tell, you can't be sure. Right. Yes, to patent or not to patent, it wasn't compulsory. There is absolutely no reason why an inventor should patent their invention if they don't want to. Um, and a great many didn't. There's certainly one very notable example who absolutely refused to, and that was Isambard Kingdom Brunel. You find no patents for any of his work. His father Mark did, but Isambard Kingdom believed that the system stifled invention, so he wouldn't have any part of it. The argument for deciding to patent was 
the obvious one that it gave the protection of an exclusive use for a stated period to the inventor. It might well be considered prestigious, an invention was worthy of patenting. The inventor then had the choice of either maintaining the monopoly for himself um, or licensing others to use it. And if you were pure an inventor rather than a manufacturer, obviously licensing could be attractive because you might have all the, the brain power and the vision to produce these things, but you wouldn't have the wherewithal to make the goods. So licensing them to a manufacturer was, was good, obviously. A groundbreaking invention rather than an improvement might be a reason for patenting, if you can kind of distinguish between the two. And another reason for patenting was if your livelihood depended on it, as opposed to it being a bit of a hobby for you. Um, you might then very well want the protection of patenting your, your invention. The arguments against patenting, it was expensive and it was quite a lengthy and complex process. There were fees at all sorts of um, stages and in particular the making up of the drawings was very expensive. Some inventors just simply want to maintain secrecy. Um, so obviously by definition you're not going to patent it to the world if you want to keep the invention to yourself. And the other thing, it was not a fail-safe. There is a lot of legislation around this, a huge amount of litigation around the idea of people claiming that somebody's stolen their patent and someone else saying, no, I didn't, and oh dear. So you might go through all the expense and hassle of a patent and still find yourself in the law courts defending your rights. Few important dates in, in, in all this. Inventors have been applying for patents since the late 16th century. That's when it first all started. And the specifications began in about 1711 and were compulsory by 1734. The specifications, first of all, were be begun with a description that was contained within the patent, a very short one, a little sort of model or drawing attached rather than the sort of big complicated ones that, that we, we all looked at. The early specification really intended just to show the confines of the patentee's monopoly rights, limit the field into which others were sort of prohibited from, from entering. Um, and it was also regarded as um, a test of novelty. It was never actually set in, in law that specifications were compulsory, but they were regarded as so. And the grant of a patent did include a clause saying that a specification must be lodged um, within a stated time, so they virtually had the, the force of law. They weren't always received with enthusiasm for the reasons that I've given. It was lengthy and expensive, I say, particularly the drawing um, to prepare the specification, as opposed to the patent itself, which was quite straightforward. In 1858, a separate patent office was established, and then specifications were filed, not enrolled, in the office of the Commissioner of Patents was enacted at that point as well that they should all be printed and published and a register available for public use because again as we'll see there was always interest always public interest in these records returning just briefly to the patents for a bit i said i'd say a little bit more about patents um the idea of a patent on a patent roll these patent rolls of letters patent or open which is what the word patent means as in something being patently clear were matters of public, i.e. open interest. So they tend to be grants um, for things that are quite important, like big grants of land or something like that. And the, the process of granting invention rights was considered to have that importance. So they were 
enrolled on patent rolls and letters patent were issued for them. But by the 18th century and during the 18th and 19th century, so much of the business of what went on the patent rolls was these patents of invention rather than all the other things that are on there. But since then, the words become synonymous with, with, with what patent means. So it's a word that's changed its meaning. We all think now of patents for invention, but it just means something that's issued open. Which is, um, which is quite interesting, really. So they're all on the patent rolls here, um, which is in C66. As I say, previous to 1853, the patents of invention really did represent the bulk of the business. And in fact, when they were removed with setting up a separate patent office, the reduction in roles are from 30 plus that would be produced every year to three to five, which just shows what a huge proportion of the business dealt with these patents of invention. Right, where to find specifications up to 1848? This is where it gets a little bit complicated and confusing because you could enrol your specification any one of three places. And the reason why you could enrol it in so many places is because of the bulk of business that you needed sort of three separate places that you could go and do it. They all had exactly the same status and it was absolutely up to the inventor uh, where, where he went to have them enrolled. So you could go to the enrolment office and they'd be enrolled on the, the close rolls. You could go to an office called the Petty Bag Office where they'd be enrolled on the specification and surrender rolls. Um, which are known as C210, or you went to Rolls Chapel office, which we heard about before, and they could be enrolled again on a different series of specification and surrender rolls, C73, and those start at various dates, the uh, Petty Bag office ones in, start in 1712 and Rolls Chapel office in 1709. In the Deputy Keeper's report of 1841, it was noticed that the process of split enrolment occasioned trouble and expense, which I'm not surprised, it must have been extremely confusing for people. The same report noted that um, the records were always popular and never close to public inspection, and their frequent consultation led to some alarm, and it was suggested in the same report that it might be desirable that the specifications should be copied in a book for common reference as they are frequently consulted by mechanics and liable to some degree of injury. So it was obviously all right for uh, historians and antiquarians to come and use the records, but they didn't want mechanics getting their dirty mitts on them. This, needless to say, was never done. Just to make it a bit more complicated, you'll notice their specification and surrender roles. These are surrenders of office. The two activities are utterly unconnected and as far as I know no one has the least idea why they were enrolled on the same rolls. Hang on, the quirks, the quirks of chancery. So specifications from 1849 because that previous process was just up to 1849. Well it was easier after that they were um, only enrolled on the close rolls and in fact they had a separate series within those in the C54s. As I've mentioned in 1853 a separate patent office was set up and those the records of that are held in the British Library. Also in 1853, the earlier specifications were transcribed and printed. As I said, there was a um, compulsion 
um, it, it was made compulsory to make this information from them available. Those are seen in the um, science reference library in the British in the British Library, and um, for taking the thing right up to date, they are going to be searched online. I think yes, and for um, patents since 1992. Not surprisingly. In the 1850 Deputy Keeper's report, it was noted that business at the Rolls Chapel noticeably declined once the specifications ceased to be enrolled there in 1849. Again, another indication of uh, what a huge amount of business it was generally within administration. Finding aids to them. This is another area of complication because they're not catalogued. You cannot put in an individual inventor or an individual um, invention and find it on the online catalogue. Unfortunately, the cataloguing is at the basic level. However, due to a wonderful man called Bennett Woodcroft, we have a very fine set of printed indexes which run from 1617 up to 1853. Bennett Woodcroft was himself an inventor. His name pops up from time to time. And he very much canvassed for a reform of this very cumbersome um, system <clears throat> and had a pivotal part in establishing the separate patent office which he was then made superintendent of specifications. So there's two volumes of subject index which are extremely useful, two volumes of chronological index again extremely useful and a volume of patentee index and then there is a, a, a general sort of reference system which gives the office at which specifications could be Consulted now, the office's copy of these indexes is in the map and large document room. There are other indexes, fortunately, in themselves, they've been superseded because some of them are not terribly easy um, to use and uh, they're actually um, starting to wear a bit as well. Some of them, but they are superseded, but you sometimes need them to um, match up to the modern document reference because the modern document reference is not contained within the printed indexes, but a lot of them have been annotated on our copy, which is extremely fortunate, um, but not all of them. But again, and all of this help is at hand because there is a research guide, the Domestic Records Information 3, and those are available both online and um, you can pick up a copy of them on site, and it tells you exactly how to match up all the various other indexes to give modern references if you need to, if they're not annotated. Returning briefly to the patents, fortunately, again, our C66 is not catalogued in detail, <clears throat> if you want them and the patent roll, you can use the Woodcroft indexes in the same way and again match them up to get the modern references from the research guide. And again, all the various other indexes are all available in the map and large document room. So the process is a little bit complicated. You're going to work at it a bit, perhaps, to find exactly what, what you're after. So, why are patents and their specifications important? Well, the first, I, I, I think, uh, most vital reason is that they are extremely important record of scientific and technological progress in the 18th and 19th centuries, and in particular, really do track and bring to life the industrial and agricultural revolutions. They are also very important as indicators of social, history, history of transport, medicine, culture, leisure, 
and domestic process, pro progress. They're all things that can be um, brought to life, if you like, throughout the 18th, 19th century by, by these records. As we will see, the drawings have superb draftsmanship and often um, considerable artistic merit in themselves, which um, is rather nice. They will clearly be of interest to genealogists who've got an inventor in the, the family. You get the name of the person um, as well as the description of what they, they invented, the parish in which they live, the date of the invention, and also their occupation, which can be quite, quite interesting in itself. But really, I like to think of it as sort of all the complexity and variety of human inventiveness that, 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 uh, that, that turns up here. Um, a sort of, particularly from the social aspect, really almost a sort of microcosm of life, large and small. In particular, it's interesting to know things like the development of labour-saving devices in the home for the middle class, hasten to add, I think not, 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 the, not the working class. Again, that shows, particularly in the 19th century, an increased wealth and variety of life and leisure that was available to, to the middle classes. And one of the things I like to point out that is that I think this is, if, if you want a really iconic example of that, it is that sort of, I suppose, object of Victorian middle class gentility, the pianoforte. There are a very large number of, in, of invention for the pianoforte. And to cheat at this point and to give some idea of the scope of, of, of what there is, to do a bit of a quotation from an article that I wrote for the Ancestors magazine, which hope, hopefully demonstrates um, in some way. Industrial processes and the machinery for industry include thread spinning, cloth weaving, lace making, dyeing processes, iron working and other heavy engineering. Railways, steam and fire engines, locomotive shipbuilding, rigging, navigation, chemicals, brewing and distilling, refining and drying foodstuffs and oils, filtering and purifying water, nail, screw, spring, rivet, buckle and button making, brick and tile making, cart and carriage making, and industrial processes, sorry, agricultural processes and machinery are represented by ploughs, drills, harrows, sewing and hoeing machinery, Methods of reaping and digging or cutting crops, hay making, chaff cutting, straw chopping. There are many items of clothing, hosiery, millinery, wig making, furniture and furnishings. And household articles abound, varying from coffee percolators, candles and candlesticks, buckets, soaps, lamps, locks, black varnish, needles, roasting spits and mangles, to water closets, fireplaces, chimney stacks and roofing materials. Improvements to utilities in the form of gas and water supply, as well as street paving methods, can also be found. The miscellany of the remainder, this list gives some idea of their variety. The production of fresh water from seawater, starch from horse chestnuts, exhibition scenery, picture hanging methods, printing, paper making, Improved account books, pens, watches, musical instruments, playing cards, embalming, embossing ivory, the making of bread and biscuits, a chocolate making machine, which I particularly fancy, I have to say. Regularly represented is that essential element of work, leisure and transport, the horse. This includes shoe and leg guards, an umbrella for the saddle, a methods of disentangling harness in the event of an accident to ensure no injury to the horse. There are many medicines, health remedies and surgical appliances, which of course gave rise to the phrase 
patent medicine. For both humans of all ages and conditions and animals, um, these a couple of my favourites are the British Balsam of Health, an elixir for many disorders, and Jesuit's Drops for the Cure of Venereal Disease. Not quite so sure about that one. As well as things like methods of attaching natural and false teeth. Some inventions reflect the social conditions of the day, such as that for an impregnable coffin to foil body snatchers, or methods of preventing pickpockets stealing wallets and watches, and others will be very controversial today, such as an improved harpoon for killing whales. So hopefully that just gives a little snippet of the range that's been there available. So, before looking at some examples, the other thing is who invented. And again, I'll cheat a bit and uh, read from the article. But basically, they fall into categories of the famous, obviously, and we'll look at some examples. The ordinary man in the street, as it were. The enthusiastic and often and probably quite insane, I think, amateur. And, and the aristocrat, which is quite interesting. You know, a good brain and time on their hands. And so a little bit about women. Well, the famous, the names that come up are probably not surprising. George and Robert Stevenson, Richard Trevithick, Daniel Gooch, John Wilkinson, James Brinley, James Watt, James Naismith, William Fairbairn, Richard Arkwright, William Horrocks, John Heathcote and William Congreve as the sort of um, some of the really major figures of the Industrial Revolution. Among other names, we find that of John Doland for optical and telescope lenses. So you can match that up to modern times, you know, beginnings of Doland and Aitchison. Robert Ransom for ploughs, and you still get Ransom lawnmowers. Roland Hill, the originator of our modern postal system, appears for patenting a letterpress. George and John Dickinson for paper manufacture, Joseph and John Manton for gum making, and George Shillabier, who was the inventor of the omnibus, for the invention of a hearse and coach building. Charles Wheatstone appears for inventions to electric telegraph, not surprising, Wheatstone's bridge, and Joseph Burrell for threshing machines, and these are all famous names within their area. Um, Broadwood as one of the major piano manufacturers, and Charles Chubb for locks, as we all know, um, Chubb locks. Charles Macintosh for waterproofing hemp, which is what led to the Macintosh. And John Ridgway for china manufacture. Charles Wheatstone is interesting because he also appears for improvements in the construction of wind musical instruments, which apparently was one of his other areas of inventiveness. And one of the things that comes out is that you can get an inventor, sometimes a huge variety of, of absolutely different things um, that they invented. One of my favourites is Christopher Pinchbeck, Jr. He's the son of a better-known father who invented the substance known as Pinchbeck, which is a substitute for gold. He, apart from other things, patented, what well, for many years, a definitive candle snuffers. But apart from this um, specification, Pinchbeck has one in which he describes himself as a toy man and mechanician. And actually, how people describe themselves, their occupation, is often fascinating in itself for a singular and useful set of tablets called the Nocturnal Remembrancer, whereby a person of genius, business and reflection may secure all their night thoughts worth preserving, though totally in the dark. Um, yes. Some patentees were absolutely indefatigable and appeared all over the place, um, often with a diverse range. And the best known of these, and I'll come back to him, is my great friend Joseph Brahma. Well, 
I've said that apart from, apart from these folks, many ordinary people and small manufacturers who just jumped on the bandwagon of inventiveness. Among enthusiastic and sometimes eccentric amateurs, we found a sprinkling of aristocrats. Now, not surprisingly, as I said, most, of, most inventors were men, um, but women do turn up, um, sometimes for quite unexpected inventions. Whilst it is not surprising to find Jane Veneff, inventing hooped petticoats, which would make it easier for women to get in and out of carriages, or Anne Young, an amusing and educational set of musical games for small children. More unlikely is Sarah Coote's invention of an improved method for caulking ships, or Elizabeth Taylor's for a set of tools for making blocks and pins, etc. for rigging ships. So, expect the unexpected. Right, now I've got some examples. This is Richard Arkwright's spinning frame and it's an invention of 1769 and uh, it's, he, des he describes it as a new piece of machinery never before found out, practiced or used for the making of weft or yarn from cotton, flax and wool. It's, it's a spinning frame which used water power and horsepower, showing you know, the very beginning of the um, industrial revolution before steam power really got going. So it was also known as a water frame. Arkwright was one of the very early large-scale manufacturers and he absolutely had an eye to the main chance. He saw and refers to in the patent, the, the need, sorry, in the specification, he saw the need to employ large numbers of people in large factories. A great number of poor people, so he knew where he was going to get them from. He expected his employees to work from 6am to 7pm and two-thirds of them were children. But he was all heart because he wouldn't employ the under-sixes. Now, this is another hefty of the Industrial Revolution, James Naismith, who produced heavy, heavy iron-cast machinery. And this is an invention for forging, stamping and cutting iron of 1842. He actually invented this which he describes as an improvement in forging machinery including the direct action steam hammer and he, he did it on a direct, as a result of a direct order from Isambard Kingdom Brunel who wanted large sheet metal for steamship construction so he went away and invented this hefty great machinery for producing what Brunel wanted which is quite an interesting example of inventors working together, inventor, manufacturer um, um, and what have you. Right. This is another famous one. This is James Watt's steam engine for raising water of 1784. That's quite interesting then, you're moving on from the art right idea of, of, of sort of horses to steam power. Um, it's described as improvement on steam engine and machines worked or moved by the same. So James Watt was one of the substantial figures of the Industrial Revolution, in particular working with Matthew Bolton and the firm of Bolton and Watt and the Soho Foundry in Birmingham. And the first steam engines were very much with the idea of sort of pumping water out of mines and that kind of thing, but also pumping water into factories and into, in, in, into various other steam-driven activities. This is one of my great favourites. Delightful steam engine. And it's one of Robert Stevenson's. That's an, an improvement in locomotive engines. And it's of 18, 
1833. Robert was the son of George Stevenson, and they were both powerful figures of industry and uh, steam locomotion in particular. This one, I, I just put it, it's, uh, the inventor, as far as I know, is not particularly well known. His name is William Crofts, and it's actually it, it's a, it's a machine for making bobbin net lace. Again, huge requirements for the 18th and 19th century for, for the production of the sort of finer materials for furnishings and for ladies' garments, obviously. But I think it, it shows it's very much the sort of typical sort of um, loom, if you like, in a factory that you, 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 you picture in huge 19th century factories, a sort of um, you know, side-on version of... Well, moving on to agriculture, this is a plough and it's Robert Ransom's, um, again, say a famous figure in the agricultural revolution. That's um, an invention of 1808. He describes it as improvements on the wheel and swing plough. The Ransom's were quite interesting family, actually. They, 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 um, they worked in Ipswich and there's still quite a lot of references in Ipswich to, to Ransom's. They were obviously... Uh, I'm proud of having had that family. Um, I think possibly not least because they were Quakers and were very interested in social improvement and um, uh, had a major part in bringing gaslighting to, to Ipswich. So I think probably the citizens of Ipswich had quite a lot to thank them for. And this is a horse hoe. Uh, again, I just picked it because it's quite attractive. Richard Gar Garrett, again, to the best of my knowledge, he's not especially well known, describes as improvement in horse hose, scarifiers, drag rakes and drills. And that was 1842. This one I put in as some sort of um, indication of inventions around transport and in particular shipping of which there are a lot. William Fitzgerald's invention for discharging water from ships of 1794. An apparatus to discharge ships of water by their own motion. I have to say it's a very pretty drawing. It's not entirely clear to me how it works on those various bits. Obviously in some way it kind of shoots out a throw it's like this thing got a cannon um, in it. But it's a very nice drawing of a boat. And moving on to uh, other forms of transport. This, this one's rather splendid, I think. It's a carriage, obviously, invented by one John Hatchet in 1788, who was described as making carriages for coaches, chariots, vis-a-vis caricals. Caricals where two people sat and looked at each other, hence the vis-a-vis. Horse chases drawn on wheels and also sleds without wheels, chiefly used in Russia, Holland and other countries. That's obviously a very, a very aristocratic building, and I think that shows and sometimes how you know beautiful, elaborate detail some of the drawings. I mean, all that elaboration round there and the sort of fabric bits. It's uh, really rather splendid. He was also a chap who 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 did other things as well, because um, he invented a machine for cleaning, sifting, and dividing grains and seeds, which could hardly be more different from inventing carriages. This is George Shillibeer's invention of a um, purse. 
and mourning and other carriages of 1841. As I mentioned before, George Shoebeer was responsible for the first London omnibus in 1829, a horse-drawn omnibus, so really in many ways he was the sort of father of our um, public transport system. Uh, what I like about this is the little details the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the body of the coach, the uh, winged hourglass from the first. I think it's rather splendid. Oh, on to, uh, <laughs> uh, on, on to matters medical. James Potts' invention of an artificial arm and leg of 1800. <laughs> slightly scary looking. But then the inventions were slightly scary, intended to be. Uh, th this one's a bit of a favourite of mine um, for several reasons. The chap who invented, who invented quite a lot of things, he pops up quite a bit, was one of our aristocrats. He was Sir Thomas Cochrane, describing himself as Lord Cochrane, it said in the specification, so I don't know if he uh, had uh, ideas slightly above his already reasonably elevated station. And it's a street lamp of 1818. It actually uses oil uh, or spirit, so it's a precursor to the gaslighting, which perhaps on the face of it, it looks as if it, it might be, because at that period gaslighting really was in its infancy. But what I like about it is again that absolutely delightful detail. I mean, the elaborate top to the lamp and then the coil, which would have been soaked in the oil or spirit, coming out into the lamp. Um, I don't know if you can see from the bottom far left one, um, he's made the mouth in the shape of a snake that the that will come out of. Just that kind of detail, just the street lighting. Completely wonderful. I had to have a piano, of course, a piano forte. This is a rather splendidly decorated one with sort of swags of flowers and what have you. John Hancock, not as far as I know, a particularly well-known manufacturer, again. Piano of 1790, described as a grand piano forte with spring key touch, German flute and harp. So presumably it got bits where you could make it sound like a flute or a harp. It's a bit like sort of modern electronic keyboard, really, you know, where you just press all the various buttons. So that's rather splendiferous for your drawing room. This, I suppose, in a way, comes under the category of either industry or, uh, or leisure, depending on how you look at it. It's a still for brewing. Henry Tickell's invention of 1800. In actual fact, from the description, he envisaged it being used for quite a number of possible purposes. It's described as an apparatus or method for more effectually dissolving and extracting the virtues and preserving the essential oil of hops, malt and other vegetable substances used in brewing, distilling, dyeing and sugar refining and dissolving animal substances in making soap. Not so sure about that one. This one's rather, rather nice. It's a, a bed in a cabinet. So, you know, if you're a bit short of space, might you get enough space for that absolutely enormous cabinet and then this mechanism for a bed pulling down from it. And this is an example where um, well, details, the written details, are actually there as part of the, part of the drawing. It's an invention of 1770 of Thomas Gale, described as a bedstead calculated and contrived for the general ease and convenience of all his majesty's subjects who may be inclined or desirous to make use of the same. Presumably not all at the same time. This, I think this, this delight one probably has to be my absolute favourite. It's uh, Benjamin Cosby's invent 
invention of a book stand of 1880, which he describes as a machine for books, etc., and could be made in any shape, which may be turned or moved at pleasure. It, it seems to me to be delightfully impractical. I mean, you presumably had to get a ladder, and then you had to kind of lean over to get the books at the top. I'm sure if you touch the bottom, those manic legs on their wheels probably went scudding off across the room, and the bust precariously propped on the top, I should think almost certainly fell off. But it is absolutely delightful, that one, I think. Ah, my great friend Joseph Brahma and his water closet. You can't go wrong with a toilet, can you, I always say. <laughs> Uh, in invention of 1778, and um, it really is a sort of precursor of the modern water closet, and having the sort of flush and bullcock idea. And apparently, there are still working examples of this in Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. But so Joseph Brown was an absolutely prolific inventor. Um, he describes himself here as a cabinet maker, which is quite interesting, making a water closet. But th this invention, plus his locks, the Brahma locks, um, were his um, most best known, um, in particular locks completely resistant to lock pickers who spent a lot of time trying to um, un unpick them. They really were um, phenomenal locks. But he also has inventions for the hydraulic press, machine tools, a planing machine, watercock, fire engine, beer engine, Paper making machine, a machine for printing sequentially numbered banknotes, only for any forger, presumably. Fountain pen, a hydrostatic press for tearing trees up by the roots, and a cure for dry rot. So he was, he was quite a lad. This one I like because it's so busy. It, it's an invention of a stove by one David Riz in 1770. It could be portable or fixed for use in rooms, churches or carriages. I think it might be slightly dodgy in a carriage, but um, um, obviously it was envisaged as um, of a very wide-ranging use. Again, a huge amount of elaborate detail. Sort of shade stroke cover for it. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, this is uh, manufacturer of this have a wonderful name of Aspley Pellet. And it's glass ornamentation of 1831, which I included as just a sort of well, domestic article, really. But again, very much in the sort of um, 19th century elaborate idea that you didn't have a plain bottle, but you, you made a stamp and you embossed that on it. Described as a mode of forming glass vessels and utensils with ornamental figured patterns impressed thereon. Oh, the body snatchers. This is John Hughes' impregnable coffin of 1823. Body snatching was actually a huge social problem in that period. In 1832, an act made it illegal, after which it gradually fizzled out, though not immediately. And obviously, you can see the whole body screwed down within the coffin to foil any, any um, body snatchers. Then um, a couple of quite quirky ones. The first is George Lidd's invention of an India summer hat of 1791. Obviously the weather was hot in India in the summer. It's a hat for men to keep the head cool in hot weather. Also would prevent headaches, apparently. A ventilation provided through an aperture K, which in the right-hand middle one, you can see K marked. 
flap coming out there where you can see it on the top. Known as a lucerne, I have to say when I saw this I had no idea what a lucerne was and I had to look it up in the dictionary. And it's a sort of roof window, so I suppose what we call a velux window now, as applied to a hat. So flap there that came out to add to ventilation for this hat. Right. And then last of all, if you can't go wrong with a water closet, well, you can't go wrong with underwear either. Then this is a lady, not surprisingly, Martha Gibbon, her invention of stays for 1800. And described as an invention of a certain new stay for women. And a couple of rather nice quotations, I think, from the specification. It prevented from doing the mischief to which persons wearing the common stay are liable. As we know, an awful lot for, um, for women's um, physical comfort. And then also, it is properly stuffed and padded in those parts required for persons to whom nature has not been favourable. <laughs> On which note? The National Archives podcast series, from cotton spinning to coffins, specifications for patents of invention, presented by Vanessa Carr. This event was recorded live on the 27th of August 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.